Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Life is changing in Australia because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacking. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... This is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tip and no iceberg. Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now, not ever. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of a sauce bottle, mate. Interest of democracy. Very good. G'day and thanks for being with us again on Democracy Sausage, the politics and policy podcast from the Australian Studies Institute at ANU in cooperation with the Crawford School of Public Policy and the School of Politics and International Relations. Scott Morrison's got plenty of problems right now, not least with showing that he is coming to grips with the gravity of dysfunction within politics and within his government. As of right now, three of his MPs are in doubt over the involvement, their involvement or handling of serious assault or bullying claims and a cabinet reshuffle is imminent, probably happening as we record this podcast. It was only a few weeks back that the focus was on Anthony Albanese's performance with questions about his ability to cut through his competitiveness against the dominant Morrison and the likelihood of an election this year as the Conservatives moved to cement their advantage by getting another three-year term. Nobody's talking about Albanese now, though, as the government wallows and lists run aground on its own failures to square up to its women problem, claims of culturally entrenched sexism, misogyny, blind eyes turned to assault, and an unwillingness to understand the sheer scale of the problem. And nobody's talking about a 2021 election now either. And it's not Morrison's only problem, not by a long chalk. There's the end of the $90 billion-plus JobKeeper wages subsidies, winding winding up today as we record this episode, with as yet unknown implications for thousands of jobs. There's the cold and deteriorating bilateral relationship with our biggest trading partner, China, which we've talked about a lot on this podcast and we'll certainly keep discussing. And there's the hash Australia has made of the climate change question for more than a decade of infantile indulgence which is now manifesting in not just international pariah status, but increased risk of carbon tariffs. You may have seen The Guardian's story last week wherein it obtained a letter from Boris Johnson sent to Morrison in December explaining why Australia would not get a speaking slot at Johnson's special climate summit. 
basically you said, because you've not done enough and merely proposing not to rely on Kyoto carryover credits simply won't cut it. The coalition's political embarrassment is frankly small beer compared to the real problems mounting up from more frequent and severe droughts and bushfires to other tumultuous weather events, such as the devastating floods still not fully receded from some areas of eastern Australia. The science shows these disasters are likely to occur over and over, rendering once reassuring scales like 1 in 100 year events far less reliable. So joining me to discuss these issues are two ANU scholars who deal in the empirical facts rather than the unedifying sophistry we've got from politics for too long now. Dr. Beck Colvin is a senior lecturer and social scientist with the Resources, Environment and Development Group at the ANU Crawford School of Public Policy. She researches how groups of people interact with each other, especially in settings of social and political conflict with regard to climate and environmental issues, and she's particularly interested in the role of social political identity in shaping these interactions. Welcome, Beck. Thanks, Mark. That's a mouthful, isn't it? You've certainly got a lot that you're interested in there, and uh, (laughs) we'll certainly come to all of those. Our other guest is Professor Jamie Pittock. Uh, He's from the Fenner School of Environment and Society, and he's interested in climate change and how we respond to it as political leaders, what our planning laws are, and how we manage risk and equity considerations on floodplains and coastal areas, how dams and other constructed features affect the landscape in a more turbulent atmosphere, and what this means for ecosystems. Great to have you here, Jamie. Pleasure to be here, Mark. So let's start with these recent floods because that I think is probably the, the what prompted me to dedicate this episode to uh, to these sort of climate change questions. Uh, and there are so many, of course. That one in one hundred year sort of scale that we hear, whether we hear it about a bushfire or we hear it about what what is now usually referred to as a rain event or a flood event. How useful are these things now, given that the it seems like the you know almost literally and figuratively the ground is shifting? They're useful and they're not useful. This is uh, a, a scientific line uh, that is the likelihood of a flood occurring uh, that's so large that it happens only one in one hundred year or one percent chance a year. And these are calculated based on the historical rainfall records that in Australia go back perhaps uh, you know, 150 years at best. Uh, the problem is that with a shifting climate, the rainfall is changing and in general we're expecting more rain uh, or more severe rainfall events that cause these floods. So the one in 100 year event's not a great measure. The problem is what do you use instead? If the one in 100 year event's becoming the one in 50 year event, where do you draw the line about things such as where you build a house? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's true because really what you're saying is there's one, there's a limited amount of sort of historical data on which to base those sorts of claims. Two, the, the, um, the weather is shifting anyway, right? So uh, even if even if you could make an absolutely accurate, if you, if you could look back 300 years, say, and say, well, this kind of rainfall happening in a short period of time only happens on average once every 100 years. But if things are changing, that's all, all that's giving you is a, you know, a, a reasonable read of the past, not a good read of the future. My scientific colleagues can look back and use things like the floodplain soils or cause of uh, sediment from past flood events. Perhaps even tree growth uh, that will have been affected Indeed. by high rainfall, you know, spurts of it, particularly in long, long-lived species or in fossil records. 
The problem in doing that is that vast areas of Australia's flat land would then no longer be areas that we would want to develop for urban areas and so forth. It's a problem around the world, so other countries are grappling with this. The United States is moving to a one in 500 year standard. Uh, to limit development, and the Dutch have gone to one in a thousand to one in two thousand year r- limits. Really? So uh, just stay with that for a moment. Let's go with the US and the one in five hundred. You're saying mm. so. Th- th- what what they would be saying there is that on the statistics that on on the evidence that they have, there's a one in five hundred year frequency of inundation. Say, if that's what we're talking about here, inundation from indeed from flooding, rainfall flooding, presumably, but it could be coastal as well, could it? Indeed, which of course we know is affected by a rising sea level. Absolutely. Um, so they're saying if there's a chance of that happening once in five hundred years, or at least that's been the history of it, uh, you wouldn't build there. You wouldn't occupy that land. Well, that's right. You either wouldn't build there, or you would build only flood-safe infrastructure. In Western Sydney, that's a bit problematic because the the historical maximum flood gets to 20 metres deep, so a few stilts won't do the job. Uh, So we really have to start making some tough decisions. Australian governments have ducked these questions through our history. It was Governor Macquarie who first complained about people building on floodplains in Western Sydney uh, in 1817. Uh, Since then, a lot of governments have allowed things to be built where they shouldn't be. And we've now got this societal dilemma about uh, what do we do about, it's not just limiting new development, it's what do we do about historical development in harm's way. And it's not just floods. As you said, Mark, it's also sea level rise. And it's also things like uh, building in fire prone areas that we shouldn't do anymore. Yeah, and of course that's a that's a very fraught issue, isn't it? Beck, you've just published an interesting piece with uh, Professor Frank Yotzo, who we've had on on this podcast before as well, uh, and you're looking at public attitudes to climate change, uh, which is really interesting because I think this goes right to the heart of uh, of the problem I think Australia's been grappling with for some time, which is it's all very well to have the science showing you, uh, you know, accumulating evidence uh, about climate change. And it's even all very well having a lot of people accepting that that is valid and and so forth. And there's a lot of evidence to suggest that Australians broadly and and many populations have accepted this. But it's quite another thing for that to manifest in people changing their votes on the basis of policies associated therewith. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So that was something we were quite interested in with this particular study. So we collected data on Australians' attitudes toward climate change, but in the context specifically of the 2019 federal election. And so one of the questions like we we couldn't assess this directly, was it the climate election or was it not the climate election? Mm. But the questions that we ask help us to look at how does climate change factor into people's voting behaviours. And so the thing that we found, which fits with what you were just saying, which is that the vast majority of Australians think it's important that Australia reduces greenhouse gas emissions. So that's important um, because, as you pointed out, it's a legacy of toxic politics and misinformation in Australia. So from the mid-2010s, Australia was second only to the United States in terms of how divided on left-right political lines we were on climate change. So the fact that there is that big majority of people going, reducing greenhouse gas emissions is important, is a useful thing to note. 
But what we found was that only a small fraction of people, including those who said it was extremely important that Australia reduces greenhouse gas emissions, considered climate change as the most important issue when they were choosing who they'd vote for. So that's telling us that, well, a couple of different things. One, it probably wasn't the climate election, so the climate election wasn't lost, which is important to note, um, but also raises questions about what will it take for Australians to elevate the issue of climate change such that it does create a political mandate for action for greenhouse gas emissions reductions as opposed to action in the opposite direction, which we'd seen claimed as a mandate in past elections. It's so complicated, all this, isn't it? Because you never really know um, what you know what determines an individual's vote. I mean, you can ask them, and they might not even give you a perfectly accurate response. For a start, some time may have elapsed, and they may have changed their view, or they mm. may obscure what was their main motivation. Uh, I, I think back, for example, to the 2007 election, which is in a sense before all of this began, although let's remember that both sides of politics going into that end of Howard, start of Rudd era election, uh, both sides were, were technically sort of booking the idea of an emissions trading scheme because that's what John Howard had commissioned that Shergold uh, research on and uh, there was essentially some sort of level of agreement around that. But it's very hard. I mean, I, I was covering politics at the time. And it's very hard to say, well, what was the factor that that saw the end of the Howard government? Was it work choices, mm -hmm. which, you know, they'd, they'd gone very strongly on. They'd got control of the Senate after 2004 and got rid of the, um, you know, safety net and so forth. So there was, there was a lot of uh, disagreement about that. There was Rudd's um, embrace of national high-speed broadband, you know, the, the, the coming of the NBN. Um, there was... Um, Climate change itself, you know, uh, uh, Rudd was uh, much more sort of front-footed about it, and Labor was generally. Um, but, of course, there was the fatigue factor after a dozen years of the coalition government. There was the fact that Rudd was essentially quite like Howard in some ways, you know, sort of socially conservative and unthreatening, proposing to spend even less than, than Howard did at the election. So you've got a million kind of issues, and, of course, you've got many more than that in terms of votes uh, being cast by individuals. You can care quite deeply about something, but it may not be the thing that you that you turn your vote on in the end. Yeah, and I think as well. So we came at this issue from we're interested in climate change and people's attitudes. Let's look at some aspects of election behaviour in that regard. But other colleagues at the ANU who are embedded in that political science space like you are have done more analyses that start with what drove the election outcome and then have looked at climate change as one of several factors. Mm. And I think their findings pointed toward climate change not being a decisive factor in that context as well. Yeah, but it, it points to a lot of things not being a decisive factor, which actually points to you know the, the other alternative, which is that a lot of things accumulate towards a person's picture of the two options. Mm. And in the case of the 2007 election, my assessment, my, my sort of gut assessment of it was, and from and from you know being close to covering it, was that essentially Rudd gave nervous voters finally a reason they could safely leave the coalition, sort of vote for the future, but without radically changing it too much. You know, um, and I shorthanded at the time that that Kevin Rudd was kind of Howard Future Boy. He was, you know, he was Howard who believed in climate change and the internet, yeah, uh, and right. Howard couldn't really bring people to 
to that yes. point because he was he'd been around too long and was a bit older and 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 you know had been quite reluctant. And of course, there was the apology in there as well, which was a a big issue for 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 many people as well. Um, of course, many people you'd say on the left it was a big issue for who were probably already going to be voting Labor. So all of these things are are quite difficult to to nail down. Um, but it seems to me the uh, the climate change question is really ripe for this sort of discussion because it's you know it's the famous kind of mile wide inch deep issue. That is, yes, everyone believes we need to do something about it, but if you tell them, okay as the coalition effectively did, well, we're going to double your power prices, your household electricity prices. Do you still still want to make that change? And they go, oh, oh you know, and, and sort of pull back. And that was really what uh, Tony Abbott was so effective at doing in 2013, for example, Jamie. Well, indeed. And I do wonder whether issues like climate change have as much salience in some of the marginal electorates as they might say, in Canberra. And the regional electorates, yeah. And ironically, it's that the marginal electorates and regional electorates on the East Coast that have been hit hardest by this mm. flood event. In in my watery field, we say that policy is governed by the hydroelogical cycle, that essentially reform only occurs when there's a drought or a flood. I'd like to think as a researcher in the field, we can build good governance and policy on uh, more evidence-based and persistent uh, improvements. Uh, but I guess we haven't been seeing that. And, and I do wonder whether a shock event like these floods might actually shift some portion of the population to say, actually, we do need to do something differently here. That's a really good question. Does a shock event do that? We, funnily mm. enough, have a shock event that piled, very, you know, this has mm. come, this one, this shock event, this flood event, mm has come pretty much 12 months after the bushfire event, uh, which was described as the worst bushfire crisis the nation had ever seen, certainly modern Australia had ever seen. Have we seen dramatic, you know, a, re, a sort of recasting of political judgments, of, of uh, administrative judgments from governments? Is it too early to tell on, in, on the basis of the bushfire thing? Or, I mean, you know, think about it. We've had the bushfires and we've had the pandemic, which is not related to the climate, of course. And then, and then this we've been this flood. We've been in a sort of a state of some level of alert and emergency for quite a while now. And I'm just wondering, psychologically, how do we factor all that in? How do how do our governments factor it all in? Is really what I'm saying. Well, I think in the federal government, there's been a tension between. Uh, a number of economists who've said that climate change adaptation is an issue for state and local governments and is not an issue for the federal government uh, and the federal government has a small role. And I think there's been a lot of procrastination and some confusion about what a federal government role is. Uh, and I know that a number of the federal ministries are very worried about you know, the billions of dollars of restoration bills from these large-scale natural events coming back to the federal government to pay and are looking for new solutions. Uh, I wonder, Mark, if, if what we're really looking for here is a combination of a shock event, a uh, political decision point like an election, uh, and uh, having an alternative policy ready to go uh, when those stars align, perhaps it's then we get the the uh, reform we're looking for. Well, that's an interesting Well, Here's another way of asking this question then, Beck, taking what Jamie just said. If 
and this is a purely kind of hypothetical situation, but if the 2019 election about which you've written was in fact happening now in the lee of these other events, would there be more saliency in the climate change question? Because it's quite clear that the two sides had fairly distinctly different policies at the last election. Uh, and indeed, Labor has apparently walked away from its, uh, you know, 45% cut by 2030 and, and its, you know, its, its steeper emissions reduction task. We're not sure where it's going to land. Uh, neither side's, uh, well, Labor's committed to net zero by 2050, but ne- neither side had. Um, well, is that right? No, actually, I think Labor had committed to net zero by, by 2050. But now that we're on this side of these two uh, big climate-related emergencies, the bushfires and now these floods, would that be the sort of game changer that might take climate change from an issue people care a lot about to one they actually turn their vote on? Well, it'd be interesting if we had another version of Earth where we could test that yeah. <laughs> to see. Yeah, that's right. But I think like what Jamie described is the idea of a policy window opening. So is the sentiment and the public in the right position where the policy that's ready to go is catalyzed by a significant event? And so there's, this is something I should have gone and read up on before we came in today because a lot of people have asked me this particular question in regard to the study that we put out. But what is the effect of um, severe weather events on people's attitude toward climate change? So um, and, I'll, how, and how lasting is it too? Yeah, yeah. so that, that's the main point that I remember. So the thing that I can recall is that there's mixed evidence. It depends on the type of event, the disposition of the person, all sorts of other factors that vary enormously from place to place and person to person. But there is a decaying effect, so there will be a short-term impact and then over time, I suppose that's why women give birth to multiple children. (laughs) They (laughs) They can't remember how bad it was. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, and we know that, you know, any physiotherapist will tell you that, you know, people go away and do the exercises for the first few weeks and then they, you know, the injury sort of gone and they sort of essentially stop doing it. I mean, it's kind of a human tendency to... When when you're proximate to whatever the, the you know the, the the emergency was, you you know it's much more front of mind, and gradually it gets incorporated into the past, and it's attempting to revert to old ways. And something that was a little bit different about these fires was if you compare the debate in the media or the way the fires were depicted in the media now compared to the 2009 fires, climate change was a lot more dominant in not necessarily always in a constructive way in the way that it was talked about, but there is a distinct comparison to the 2009 fires and the way they were represented in the media. And there's also the strong institutional acknowledgement of the role of climate change in increasing the risk of events that were as extreme as what we saw. All right, we'll take that point up again in just a moment. Just take a quick break and be back. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. 
You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, before the break, Beck, you were saying that you're talking about the 2009 fires uh, and the, the impact that they have politically. I'm interested in this whole uh, this whole question about, I suppose we're talking about the taxonomy of these issues in a way in terms of against politics, right? Um, one of your interests is the way in which people uh, identify or construct their identity by association with issues, I suppose, or association with groups that are connected to issues. And in Australia, that's been, you know, that's in a sense been the great blight of the of the climate change question in a much stronger way, f- for example, than has been the case in the UK, when Boris Johnson, as I mentioned in my intro, is much more progressive on on climate change questions. So in, in Australia, there's a very strong association with climate denialism on the right and with, with sort of climate evangelism um, on the left, I guess, as the right might see it. Uh, and um, and when issues are like that, I guess that as much as anything else, as much as the facts of, 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 the, of the policy area can dictate where people sit on it. What you, You've reported some of this research in your piece, haven't you, that shows that, you know, coalition voters – are less that you know even when they're inclined to believe in it are less inclined to believe in it very deeply. Mm, yeah, and so like there's issues of interests that may come into play around these sorts of things as well. But there's a concept from political science that's really helpful for thinking about this, which is affective polarization. So affective in the sense meaning to do with how we feel our emotions, mm. and so the affective polarization is the we form our positions and the strength of our positions less on the substantive issue but more on the group relationships, so expressing how different we are from those people over there. So that relates to another concept which is expressive partisanship, which is where we express who we are in terms of our partisanship, our political identity or other identities that are relevant to politics or relevant to policy issues like climate change. And we're not really thinking about what is the depth of the issue. How do you weigh up the costs and benefits of action now, action in the future, of reducing emissions now or dealing with houses built in flood areas? It's about whose side am I on? Mm. What position have they taken? And how do I want to differentiate myself from the people that I see as being different from me? Often it's that differentiation that can be really profound as opposed to looking for the group that we belong to. It's saying I'm not like them. I'm different from those people. So how much can we, I mean, this is an unfair question, perhaps you should be asking me it and I can opine much more freely on it, but <laughs> I wonder how much we can sort of blame Tony Abbott for this because in a way Tony Abbott's come along and kind of really seized on this issue. Bear in mind he seized the leadership of the uh, the Liberal opposition, the coalition opposition at the time, the leadership of the Liberal Party from Malcolm Turnbull at the end of 2009 on this question, very much on on. on Turnbull being seen to be too far out in front of his party and too progressive on climate change, brooking the idea of a an emissions trading uh, scheme. Uh, and Abbott pushed back. Yeah, there were a lot of other people in the party room who stood up with him and Abbott emerges as the leader. And from that moment on, this whole policy area descends into a, uh, a, a you know a febrile kind of binary. You know, you are either on the left and you're, you're pro-action on climate change or you're 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 on the conservative side and you're not how much has that damaged our ability to find a way forward on this is is it is this in a sense why we haven't for all this time 
I would say so, yes. Uh, and we can see in the conservative side of politics some leaders who are arguing for evidence-based policies. You know, I can think of people like Matt Keane, the New South Wales Minister for Energy and the Environment, who is putting forward a strong conservative case for backing climate change action in terms yeah, of yeah. things like investing in renewable energy because it's generates jobs and investment and stable energy prices and brings employment to disadvantaged rural areas. And so I think it's the conservative side of politics have that potential to do it. Uh, they've just, I think, allowed themselves to be held hostage uh, to the naysayers. Yeah, and it's interesting when you think about the coalition because the Nats are a particularly kind of ossified rump on this question inside conservative politics. There are a few you know, more enlightened ones, but essentially there are, you know, the Nats are basically not for any action and they were, it was one of the reasons they were so sort of hostile to, to Turnbull even back in those days. Um, so it's, when you think about it, as you were saying before, Jamie, about regional and, 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 and rural voters, or, you know, you were talking about marginal seats, but, you know, people outside of the cities are particularly vulnerable because uh, they live off the land uh, to uh, the, the changing climate. So, you know, the, the, the Farmers' Party is at somewhat, somewhat at odds, even, maybe not socially, but, but on the basis of the interest, long-term interests of their constituency uh, with, with, um, with their voters. And I think we are seeing with the election of some independents like Cathy McGowan in Indi, mm. some rural communities saying, Helen Haynes now, of course, Sorry, has taken Helen over. Hay, yeah. My apologies. We yes. had her on the podcast last week. And oh, uh, for anyone listening, go back and have a listen to it because she's talking about her regional energy plan for Australia and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's makes a whole lot of sense. You know, it's mm, not politics. Mm, mm. It's common sense. And even the Shooters, Farmers and Fishers Party in New South Wales have had members elected uh, in the west of the state on the basis of taking action on some of these these issues about climate change and water scarcity and, and fair allocations. Mm. So perhaps uh, there there will be opportunities in the future for the con for the conservatives to put the the conservation back in conservative yeah. in terms of being proponents of minimal and cautious change to maintain uh, the status quo. Yeah, you mentioned Matt Keane, the New South Wales Environment Minister, and he's been particularly outspoken on these questions. And uh, I think you know that's taken a lot of courage. Really, he's certainly uh, attracted a few critics within the conservative side of politics. More broadly. How well are governments responding to climate change as an issue and to these sorts of, uh, you know, questions you've been looking more specifically at building on floodplains, uh, coastal inundation, these sorts of questions? Uh, because, you know, that, 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 that's where they're the places that deliver the services that have, you know, run the planning laws and so forth. And they need to, they're the ones liable in the end, aren't they? Or at least in, in liable in cost terms. Well, I guess this is the uh, benefit of a federation that we do have these states who can be policy innovators and show the way uh, to do things. Without quite the heated politics that we see around it nationally. So, we've, so we take the question of net zero by 2050. All the states and territories have embraced it. Mm. So what does that mean? I mean, does it actually matter that the Commonwealth hasn't? Well, perhaps not. I mean, if the states do uh, aggressively advance those sorts of policies, as we've seen the ACT reach uh, zero energy emissions, we've seen these net zero policies in other states, 
the renewable energy boom underway in states like South Australia that's conservative. New South Wales is now proposing that. Uh, perhaps if uh, they... Uh, they succeed, that's going to drag uh, the federal government reluctantly with them. What do you think, Peg? Whether it matters if there's not a federal commitment or not, I'm not sure. That's outside of my area of I mean, of it matters expertise. internationally. Like, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 of course. Um, but one thing is around the idea of political leadership and kind of opinion leadership as well. And so, yeah. like you're asking about, was Tony Abbott's divisive approach to climate change damaging? Yeah, <laughs> but also is the potential, and especially from the survey research that we got that showed, so not only do 80% of Australians think it's important to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, 70% of conservative voters think the same. And so that shows that there's a big opportunity for leadership in that space. And we know we've got the evidence that tells us that when you've got people who are leaders of an identity group or a group that has some sort of shared sense of identity, that the position taken by leaders is really important for queuing So, so someone like Matt Keane can influence uh, conservative politics because he speaks notionally as a conservative MP, minister. If, if he manages to retain his kind of in-group identity. So the risk is that you've got to walk that line. You don't want to be so different from the group that you're connected with psychologically that you become an outsider or you get ridden off as being they're not a true type of X because they think this. Yeah, so, yeah, 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 that's right. You, that, and that's what you get. And you got that a lot with Turnbull, right? I mean, I know working in the press gallery, you know, I had members of the Parliamentary Liberal Party actually say to me, he's not one of us, about Malcolm Turnbull. It, it was very telling, I think, in terms of, uh, you know, the dilemma that he found himself in some years later as leader and, uh, you know, I've opined about this before, but I think we misunderstood, that is all of us misunderstood how emotionally scarred Turnbull was after 2009, losing the leadership. He finally gets it back in 2015, this time as Prime Minister, so he's he's got the ultimate prize. But the criticism can be made, and I should say I'm hoping to be talking to Malcolm Turnbull quite soon on this podcast, so perhaps we'll talk about this as well, but... Um, you know, he came back and there was this sort of sense that he was very conscious, you know, hyper-conscious of his party room. Uh, and so we got the hesitancy on same-sex marriage. We got the Republic parked completely. You know, he became a, what was an Elizabethan Republican, you know, while, while, while the Queen's there, this issue won't go anywhere. We got the Uluru Statement from the Heart effectively, you know, punted straight away as, you know, the third chamber argument. Uh, and 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 on climate change, of course, we eventually had the National Energy Guarantee, which goes to the party room twice, but never makes it to the floor of the parliament on the threat of, a, of you know some noisy backbenchers saying they can't support it. And all of this, I think, you can see in that rubric of Turnbull being very conscious of how vulnerable he is to attack from within his own party. It's a fascinating piece of. I mean, it goes to your point about in-group membership and. What happens if you are not seen to be in yeah. that group? And it also raises questions about how similar is the party room to the voters that keep them in power as well. It's a really good point, <laughs> actually, because party rooms never are. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing. I mean, the, the, the rank and file of the Labor Party is to the left of the of the you know the Australian population, broadly speaking, as a mass, and the rank and file of the Liberal Party is definitely to the right of the you know the the bulk of voters. It, when you think about it, it kind of makes sense. That's the motivation for joining, in a sense. You know, you're committed to these issues, to these values, and 
and so forth. Mm. I do wonder also, though, about the power of vested interests, business interests in some of these policy changes. And I wonder in the case of climate change mitigation and renewable energy, whether Australia is developing a um, a mass of renewable energy companies that might begin to shift that influence on politics in favour of action, mm. whereas I think what we're seeing in terms of climate change adaptation, particularly in New South Wales, is the uh, the interests of the developers uh, pushing against sensible policies like limits to developments on floodplains right. because they are targeting that land for development in harm's way and don't want you know, state government constraining uh, that business opportunity. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. I was, um, I was in Byron Bay. In fact, I did one of these podcasts from there uh, last year, middle of last year, and the development in Byron Bay, of course, is uh, it's well known that you know there are, there's a lot of coastal erosion there. There's a tidal river that sort of flows around the back of it and comes out along along the beach just to the north of the town, and so that spit of land is as 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 people tell me there is um, vulnerable to inundation from both sides. And there are you know there's a lot of development there. There's a and there's a lot of money. You know you can imagine that it's fairly expensive real estate. Um, and you just look at it, even with a lay eye, you look at it and you think, this is not very high above sea level here. And that's a good microcosm, I think, of, uh, of the pressure that's happening for development in a number of places up and down the coast, but, but on floodplains, presumably inland as well. Mm. And we're increasingly going to see the limits to that development as towns are lost. Uh, in 2011, we saw the town of Grantham, upriver of Queensland, wiped out. And there the local government and town made the sensible decision to rebuild on higher ground. Mm. I guess the question for the sorts of floods we've just seen is what policies will the federal and state governments take to this? Will some hairy-chested politicians go there and say, we're going to build back, which to my mind is the wrong answer, uh, as opposed to saying uh, we will build back better and preferably somewhere else, which is a much harder political decision to take, but in society's longer-term uh, term interests. Well, you mentioned about business uh, potentially driving the government, and we've seen this in, in social policy as well in this area we were, you know, I mentioned in the introduction about, about uh, gender relations, for example, businesses way ahead of, of, of governments, uh, or certainly of the political class on these sorts of questions. And of course, government, conservative government ministers have railed against businesses that have been, you know, they've they've perceived to be too forward leaning on on climate. So plenty of businesses are working out they need to be carbon neutral. They need to uh, lower their own energy bills as well as uh, you know their output. Um, they need to have that profile in with their customer base that they are progressive. Of course, the other question though is you know the money. You know they say in political journalism, follow the money. Talking about the sorts of um, uh, inundation crises that we've seen with certain towns and the like, how do you ensure those things? I mean, if you follow the money, surely those properties become extremely expensive to insure if they are um, in a place that's prone to a flood risk. And is that where why the one in hundred years or one in fifty or one in five hundred? Is that why those things matter? Well, yes, it does. And indeed, it's interesting, the Insurance Council of Australia has just changed its policy 
in relation to the proposal to raise Warragamba Dam in Western Sydney to capture more floodwaters. And they've recently said, we now recognise the evidence that building that sort of so-called flood control infrastructure, which inevitably fails, will actually lead to more catastrophic losses. So it raises the wall and the risk profile. <laughs> Indeed it does. Indeed it does. And so uh, you've got um, New South Wales ministers in the papers today saying we'll build the dam so we can develop more on the floodplain and you've got the Insurance Council saying, uh, hang on a minute, uh, we don't necessarily want to insure uh places in harm's way like this. And perhaps it's the insurance industry that's actually uh, providing the, the policy reform that, that we need here. Yes. Now, Beck, just back to you on the question of sort of the political attitudes about this. One of the other things I noticed in the piece you wrote uh, was about um, how young people understand climate change. And I think you make the point that if the young people who uh, say it's a pivotal issue now continue to hold that view as new voters come into onto the electoral roll, this will increase. Can you talk to that point? Yeah, so we found a very strong age signal on the results. And what I mean by that is that um, younger people were more likely to say that greenhouse gas emissions is important or extremely important compared to older people. And so this... Uh, was something that we could then look at what's going to be the age distribution in Australia in the future is inevitably people are going to age. We can't assume some sort of inevitability about people's um, partisan allegiances shifting over time, but we can look at how people are going to age. And we do know that people generally become more conservative, but on the other side of this, on this particular issue, this is a cumulative issue. This is an issue yeah. that's sort of getting worse, right? So I don't think it's too heroic to suggest that you know the problem won't go away and therefore people will continue to be if they're concerned about it now there's going to be a lot of evidence to keep them concerned a lot of worrying evidence yeah. unfortunately and like there's all sorts of things about how we interact with new information new information that threatens our understanding of the world so for older people who had to learn about climate change after they'd already set up their view of the world what it means to be a good person what it means to be responsible so on and so forth mm. climate change can threaten that idea of how the world is. But for younger people who are coming into the world knowing about climate change, it's, it doesn't have that same level of kind of sandpapering necessarily yeah, yeah. with the state of the world. Yeah. Um, but also one of the other things that a lot of the literature about, which you're probably very well across, that shapes people's attitudes in the longer run are the major social and political events that happen within formative years. So when yeah. you're late adolescence, early adulthood. So for the young people now who are looking at the fires that we had last year, seeing the floods, seeing event on event on event on event, and they know they've been taught the science, they can see the evidence, mm. they're going to have a very different relationship to climate change as they age compared to older people now. Beck, I'd be interested with your, um, your research whether some of those people who are reluctant to translate any concern about climate change into political action, would they respond differently in terms of climate change mitigation if it was couched in terms of Australian energy independence, not relying on imported uh, fuel, uh, the Roscarno, Australia as an energy superpower? Would that uh, change their minds as opposed to a climate change uh, issue? 
think there's good evidence to suggest that that's likely the case. So I haven't seen anything that's looked at those points specifically, but what you're talking about is framing the way that we describe climate change, climate policy in a way that fits with people's values. So not accepting that the entire world is going to cast aside what they care about and start caring about what we care about and then therefore act on climate change because we care about it and want them to, but looking at what is important to people. And I think also, so right at the beginning, we talked about how our study showed um, questions around the willingness of folks to make sacrifices to deal with climate change. But Jamie, what you've been talking about shows the sacrifices that we will be required to make if we don't deal with climate change. And so there's also interesting questions there about at what point are we dealing with what types of costs? And yeah, that's it. right. And how tangible that, how real yeah. that. I mean, yeah. I've, I've always thought this is one of the problems with this issue, right, is that uh, it's a con- it's an asymmetric contest between the past or the what we well, let's call it the present, which is the accumulation of all the facts that we know of and, until this moment, and then the future, which of course can't be literally known until it happens, and that makes it always for some people that say, well, they can argue with that all the time. You know, they can argue, well, that might not happen. Or, you know, the, 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 how do you know that's going to happen? You know, the, the casting of doubt. You could watch it in Australian politics. All you needed to do is have a few credible people, one or two uh, scientists who were arguing against the tide uh, and and those who didn't want to believe about the future risk of uh, rising sea levels and so forth could suddenly cite these scientists and sort of the leveraging up of doubt uh, around that as an excuse not to do anything, not to change anything was a really important factor. But it has changed because... You don't have the Tony Abbott style argument being put in conservatism anymore. You have, I mean, there's a few people still, you know, shouting in the wilderness kind of thing, but you don't hear Scott Morrison sort of actually quibbling with the science. Mm. He might be dragging his feet on net zero by 2050 and a few other things, but you can sort of feel the direction of all of this. There's an acceptance now. So, you know. Yeah. Oh, that political acceptability window has shifted. It has. And part of like talking about the regional voters as farmers for climate action who are doing what they say they're doing mm. in the name of their group. There's also the National Farmers Federation, which have yes, actually good point. adopted a pretty mm. interesting Absolutely. position on climate change. Yes. Meat and Livestock Australia have committed to net zero by 2050 or mm. something mm. Along, along those lines. So there's lots of other important actors in the political sphere that are changing position. You mentioned interests as well. We can go back and look at the resources that were mobilised by the minerals industry three times against two lots of climate legislation and the minerals resource rent tax. Yes. And their approach, the explicit approach from the Minerals Council of Australia was government won't listen to us, but they'll listen to the people. So we'll influence the government by affecting public opinion on this issue. Yeah, but which works if you've got plenty of money. Yeah, <laughs> of course, absolutely, and they did. Yeah, But that's shifting. So all of these institutions are adopting different positions and it's not acceptable nowadays to be an outright denier. You can delay, mm, mm, you can make mm. empty targets, you can say you're doing good things when you're not doing good things, mm. manipulate data, whatever, but you can't deny outright. Yeah. And the risk profile, the risk equation has changed. You know, there's a growing sense that the risk lies with doing nothing, not with doing something. Um, look, it's been terrific having you both on, uh, Beck Colvin and James Pittock. Really, uh, really enjoyed this conversation. We'll have to do it again at some point. Look forward to it, Mark. Yeah, thank you very much. And uh, that's it for Democracy Sausage uh, for this, well, this early one of this week. I'll be back later in the week with another one. And until then, uh, ciao for now. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.